you want to go way above the normal recommendations. So for example, go quite a bit above two or at least to two grams per kilogram body weight per day. That triathlon show, 113. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I discuss body composition and racing weight and this is uh, the final part for now in the series of uh, kind of research review on nutrition for triathletes that I've been doing. The previous episodes were episodes 94 and 95 which were called Triathlon Nutrition Calories, Carbs, Fats and Proteins, Parts 1 and 2, and Episode 100, which was called Nutrition Before, During and After Workouts. So go and check those out, I'll link to those in the show notes and the episode description. And just as in those episodes, I have used a couple of research reviews or meta-analysis as uh, foundations for this discussion. The first one being the Joint Position Statement on Nutrition and Athletic Performance. Uh, that was published in the Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise in 2016. And I'll link to all of these, by the way, so you can find them. And the second one here that I haven't uh, mentioned before, I believe, is uh, by the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the ISSN. It's a position stand called Diets and Body Composition. And that was uh, published in the Journal of International Society of Sports Nutrition, their own journal, in 2017. And finally, I've also looked at a case study publication by one of the best uh, nutrition researchers in the world, uh, Trent Stellingworth. And this case study is called Body Composition Periodization in an Olympic level female middle distance runner over a nine year career. And uh, so yeah, those are all listed. And let's get into the uh, topic right after we thank our sponsors. And this episode is sponsored by Precision Hydration. They are the sweat experts that get you hydrated and keep you hydrated with their great electrolyte drinks that they have in various strengths to suit different sweat rates and sweat sodium contents. And one great piece of content that they recently published that I highly recommend checking out is uh, called Are Athletes Winning the War on Cramp? It's based on their annual cramping survey and some interesting quick stats from that survey is that 27% of athletes suffer from cramp quote-unquote often as opposed to sometimes or rarely. So that's quite a lot, more than one in four. And men suffer more than women and athletes 35 years or older suffer more often from cramps as well. So check that out, there's tons of more interesting stuff in there. I'll link to it in the episode description. And as you know, you can get your first box or tube of electrolyte product for free on precisionhydration.com when you use the promo code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. This episode is also sponsored by Stack. The Stack Zero is the world's quietest indoor bike trainer and breaking news, they just, by the time of this recording, announced that their new variable resistance trainer will ship in September 2018 and is available for pre-order for a 150 euro discount until the end of April on stackzero.com forward slash pre-order. 
this is a great chance to save big on what's already a very affordable trainer compared to other bike trainers out there with comparable features. And I just saw this, so I haven't had the time actually to, to ask uh, the stack team whether this uh, discount is uh, combinable with the TTS20 discount code that normally gets you 20% off. So just go for it, try it and see if it works. If it doesn't, you still get a fantastic discount with that 150 euros. And uh, But please let the stack team know that I sent you anyway, if you will. Uh, that really helps. And uh, here's uh, a final cool thing about that pre-order. They have an option called Ride Now, Upgrade Later. So you can actually get their current version of the trainer right away. And then later on you'll get an easy to install upgrade kit that gives you, that makes that trainer the variable resistance model. So that is awesome. Alright, with that said, let's get into the main topic, body composition and racing weight. So before uh, splitting this main discussion into a few, I guess, uh, subheadings, if you will, uh, a few key main points that I want to make is that first and foremost, there's no one single optimal body composition or racing weight for triathletes. Two athletes that are the same height may perform at their own respective best at quite different weights and or body fat percentages. It is, as most things in training and, uh, and sports, individual. But of course, in general, it is beneficial not to carry excess weight. And this is uh, the big question. What is excess weight, of course? And that, that's where the individualization comes in. But uh, if you carry excess weight, whatever that is for you, uh, or if you, sorry, if you don't carry excess weight for you, that lowers your energy cost of going at a certain speed on the run, for sure, and on the bike, for sure, if you're going uphill, uh, to some extent on uh, on flats, but mostly, uh, mostly on the uphill, on the flats, aerodynamics trump weight, usually. Uh, but there's the other advantage as well, in addition to going re reducing the energy cost, that actually, if you don't carry excess weight, then you will have a fa favorable ratio of weight to surface area that is beneficial for heat dissipation. And of course, as you know, when you when you go for a long time, your your core temperature, your body temperature slowly heats up. And at a certain point, that will prevent you from going any faster and your body will start to actually slow you down to reduce that temperature. And especially, this is not only true in, in hot climates, this is true anywhere, but especially, of course, in hot climates, because you'll be closer to that threshold from the start. And, uh, and the final main general point I guess I want to make is that weight loss in itself should never be the end goal, because weight loss is only really beneficial when you maximize loss of body fat while preserving muscle mass. The exception is if, let's say, you come from a bodybuilding background or something, or you've just been going a lot to the gym and you're, you have a lot of muscle, if you want to be the best triathlete you can be, then losing some muscle from parts of the body where you're not really using them, like those, those biceps, that, that they, those are not really <laughs> necessary for triathlon, for example, but that's a case where you could lose other uh, mass than fat, but usually for most normal age groupers, it's really the body fat that you want to lose and preserve most muscle mass. So let's start. The first thing that I want to discuss is actually how do you 
how, how do you measure body composition? So but it can be measured in different ways. You can actually take measurements like how what's your your waist circumference and all those sorts of things. Usually what we talk about is uh, body fat percentage, or that's the most common, but there are a ton of them. And I'll link to some resources, at least one that's really good. But uh, if we stick for now to body fat percentage, uh, there are a few ways to measure that. And the gold standard is to take a DEXA scan that stands for Dual Energy X-ray Absorptiometry. Uh, but that's uh, pretty expensive and not available at all places because it's a uh, pretty advanced equipment. And uh, so you may not have that available. And if you do, I know in some places it actually, you need a prescription from a doctor. You, you can't just go for, as an athlete. You need some prescription. That varies, of course. But if you have uh, available, availability to DEXA scan, that's the gold standard, by far the best. Then another very common option is to get skin fold measurements. So a nutritionist or somebody of a similar, yeah, somebody who is in the field will have like these skin fold calipers to measure uh, the thickness of your skin at certain places. And that's uh, very common. And, and it's a great surrogate measure of, uh, of your body composition. Uh, and especially if you do it at the same place with the same calibrated equipment time and time again. But the disadvantage with this is that uh, there is, of course, of course, some big variation in terms of, uh, well, for one thing, equipment, but also, like, what are the exact locations where you take it. And, of course, there's the human error factor in in that. There's a human that is taking those measurements and need to uh, see what your measurement actually is. Then there's also bioelectrical impedance analysis. So that's just like stepping onto a scale and and uh, holding onto some uh, some side rails basically and uh, having a weak electric current uh, go run through your body, which uh, allows the equipment to measure your body fat percentage, which can be pretty good, but it can also be hit and miss. So DEXA is by far the gold standard. Uh, and uh, whatever you do, I guess the main point is that you should try to if you want to get some measurements done, be consistent with where you go. Decide on where you want to go and get those measurements done and then stick to that and make sure that if you get something like Skinfold, that it's actually the same person that's doing those measurements time and time again and not a new person every time because then otherwise you won't really be able to compare that data. DEXA is... Uh, is somewhat standardized so or is standardized so so you can compare dexa data wherever you you take that base usually at least but those are kind of uh, the main things oh yes one more thing you need to actually strictly follow uh, the protocols for before the assessment and you need to actually make sure that it's the same protocols before uh, repeated tests so when you go at a later date and uh, so these can include things like how you fast and hydrate before tests and how you train before tests and so on so that's that's about the measuring of uh, of body composition and body fat then let's get into the meat and potatoes i guess and what you all want to hear which is how do you improve body composition and uh, and when do you do it Let's tackle the when of it first. So when you actually want to lose some body weight, it uh, you, you need to have an energy deficit in your diet and it's best to do this in the base phase of training or well out from competition to minimize loss of performance 
according to the joint nutrition position statement that is a research review as i talked about in more detail in the previous episodes in this series uh, but there are exceptions here and i'll talk about one of those later when i cover the case study by trent stellingworth they actually do the the weight loss in the competition phase and, and not in the base phase so but but again that's where you need to find your individual answer but if you want to get to get to know what the best uh the first option will be then i would say do it in the base phase not in the competition phase and if that ends up not working too well for you well then you can try something different but but i would advise you to actually do the base phase and that that's what what i tend to do uh, myself as well uh and what uh, when when it comes to actually improving it there are a few things that you many things that you should do but there's even more things that you shouldn't do and uh if we talk about those things that you should not do first of all you should not be obsessive with weight or with body fat and uh, or with diet or with different uh, rapid weight loss strategies and that sort of thing remember that uh, at the end of the day performance is very very multifactorial and how you train leading up to the race is uh, probably the biggest uh, the most important thing not how much you weigh uh, on race day so if your strategy to reach your optimal race weight actually impairs your training significantly then you're still not going to perform as well so so it's a yeah it's a lost cause basically so don't get overly obsessive realize that it's one part of the puzzle and there are bigger parts of the puzzle than reaching your optimal race weight there, there are many ways of uh, reducing weight that are not going to be beneficial either. So, for example, you can quite quickly reduce your body weight by just not hydrating enough and, and losing, uh, losing your uh, dehydration status of your body. So, a deficit of water in your body. And also, you can, depending on how you do your diet, you can lose a lot of glycogen stores and lean mass and uh, neither one of those is beneficial i talked about lean mass already but glycogen stores are equally important when you're doing uh, a lot of endurance training whether it's hard or easy you need those glycogen stores and uh, and that is super important and and that is why you can't do you should keep a moderate a gradual slow approach to weight loss and not engage in rapid weight loss strategies and i guess it goes without saying but uh, things like starving yourself or purging or just doing excessive training to get in a caloric deficit they will impair health and performance both of them it's not just performance think about your health as well uh, so you should never do that and uh, and again don't uh, try to do rapid weight loss strategies but that said uh, to lose weight a bit more quickly can be preferred compared to having an extended period of constantly being in low energy availability or energy restriction caloric restriction mode and suboptimal uh, nutritional support simply so so that is energy availability go back to episode 94 and listen to that i'll return to that when i talk about the case study again later in this episode but that's super important so so don't just because you don't want to do rapid weight loss that doesn't give you license to go and be in a constant mode of uh, caloric deficit or or low energy availability a couple of things to note and this is from the 
ISSN, a position statement on body composition. Uh, there are a wide range of dietary approaches uh, from low fat to low carb and all points in between that can be similarly effective for improving body composition. Usually if you control for protein, uh, it doesn't, you, can, you can achieve great body composition however much carbs or fat you take in. And uh, then for the more about carbs and fat, again, go back to episodes 94 and 95 and listen to that. But don't think that you need to have either a low fat or a low carb approach. There are many, many variations, all sorts of variations. So you don't need to factor that into how you eat. And also, and, and the point I want to make with this uh, as it relates to how not to do weight loss is not to think that you need to go on on a named or labeled diet. That's not the way to do it. And uh, finally, the final point that you should not do is uh, at this point, the collective body of evidence does not suggest that uh, any sort of intermittent fasting or intermittent caloric restriction has any sort of advantage over just having your normal daily caloric deficit target for improving body composition. So intermittent fasting is uh, not something that can be recommended at this point either. So let's move on to how you should do it. And uh, as I said, you want to maximize loss of body fat while preserving lean muscle mass and preserve your health. So, so you need to have that slight energy deficit to achieve a slow rather than rapid rate of weight loss. And you also to sustain that level of, uh, of lean muscle mass, you want to increase your, your protein intake. And... Uh, Usually, I talked about protein in episode 95, and here you definitely, even if you don't train very much, you want to go way above the normal recommendations. So, for example, go quite a bit above 2, or at least to 2 grams per kilogram body weight per day. So, let's say you weigh your weight is 70 kilograms, then you want to get in at least 140 grams of protein per day in that energy restricted or calorie restricted phase when you try to lose weight and that will retain most of your muscle mass while you lose weight in in the shape of body fat so so that's awesome and one one study actually that showed what kind of rate you want to shoot for is that if your weekly weight loss is uh, less than one percent in terms of your your body weight then uh, that's uh, that's roughly right. So again, let's say your weight is 70 kilograms, that would be 0.7 kilograms per week that uh, that you can lose, and that will uh, you can lose that while retaining your lean muscle mass. You can lose more than that, and you can even lose more than that and stay healthy, but you will lose part of it as fat and part of it as lean muscle mass. So that's why you want to to take that slower approach. And a couple of other points, and now I'll again return to some takeaways from the ISSN uh, research paper as opposed to the, the joint position statement. Uh, these points are that uh, the higher your baseline weight, the more aggressive you can be in your caloric deficit. If you are already quite lean, then, then you want to have a slower rate of weight loss to preserve lean muscle mass as I just talked about. But if you're overweight then you can actually have probably a higher rate of weight loss and their take the ISSN uh, research review take on protein intake 
it's the same that higher protein intakes, but they go as far as saying in the 2.3 to 3.1 gram per kilogram fat-free mass per day. Actually, it might not be that much higher because here it's fat-free mass and not total body mass. But that's their take on, uh, based on their research review. So it's similar, but uh, again, going high and quite a bit higher than normal recommendations. They also cite some research in, uh, in resistance training athletes. So strength training were going above three grams per kilogram has uh, demonstrated even better results. And there are a few interesting reasons actually for why, for why it's so effective to increase protein intake. First of all, of course, amino acids in proteins are the building blocks for your lean muscle. But also protein has a much higher thermic effect, which is the amount of energy that the body uses to digest and process food than fat or carbohydrate. Uh, so as much, much as 30 to 35% of, of energy intake in the form of protein goes directly to processing it. And for carbs, this is 5 to 15%, and for fat, only up to 5%. Uh, so that's why protein is, uh, is so great when you are in a weight loss phase. And protein is also very satiating, so it helps you stay fuller longer despite that caloric deficit. So, so those are kind of the reasons that, that protein is, uh, is so important. And, uh, so, and the ISSN paper also states, no, sorry, this is the joint uh, position statement, states that uh, if you are talking calories per day, then usually between 250 to 500 kilocalories per day uh, can, be, can be an appropriate uh, energy deficit. But again, that will depend on your size and uh, how much energy, how much you train or, and how much energy you usually get in. If you're a female and you're not training that much and you're usually eating 1500 calories per day, then 500 calories per day of deficit, that's a third of what you're getting in. That would probably put you in, in too low energy availability. So you would probably want to stay at the lower end of that. So you need to factor in the individual in that range, of course. As for the timeline, they state that three to six weeks is an appropriate period to, to achieve your racing weight goals. So, so that's the timeline you will be looking for. And that also gives you a guide for how much weight you can gain between in the off season, so to say. So if you let's say that you have six weeks and your off season weight is 70 kilograms and you can lose 0.7 kilograms per week, that gives you four kilograms that you can actually cut in six weeks roughly 4.2 so so at most so if your race weight is 66 uh, kilograms and uh, then you know that in the off season and over christmas you should not allow yourself to get uh, above 70 kilograms 70 is kind of where you should where you should stop adding weight so so that gives you can help you actually in in monitoring because it's totally fine and recommended to gain weight in the off season a little bit but with uh, the emphasis on a little bit a couple of kilograms depending on on how much you your you weigh so so that's uh, an important point to make as well and finally the timing of your meals is very important in this phase and that's something that we talked about in the interview that I did in episode 40 with Jesse Kropelnicki, which is a great episode that I highly recommend listening to. And uh, when you're in a weight loss phase, what you want to do is you don't want to, uh, to eliminate... If you do a workout that you would uh, consume energy in, you should keep doing that. And you should, of course, keep uh, having your post-workout uh, nutrition 
but what you so so that's the very important thing but then what where you can be cutting out is maybe later in the day so so that's let's say you do a workout in the morning you would have a normal breakfast let's say and let's say you have a bottle of sports drink during that workout you would have that still but then maybe you have a slightly smaller lunch than you would have in your normal normal training phase and a slightly smaller dinner to get to that let's say it's 250 kilocalorie deficit per day so the timing uh, of meals that's important and the content again like more protein and to and otherwise also trying to get uh, the kind of food that is satiating and one good trick that at least for me that i personally find helps is to eat a lot of a large volume of food but that is very low in, in caloric density so that means basically vegetables <laughs> and i eat a lot of vegetables and then you can get really full even though you're not consuming uh, as much carbs as you maybe think you are actually or as much calories sorry that i should say so to summarize in uh, three points lose your weight slowly uh, over a three to six week period uh, less than one percent of your body weight per week that allows you to preserve lean muscle mass and if you don't preserve that you're not really optimizing your weight loss and point number two increase your protein intake and as a consequence of that of course you'll need to reduce your your carbon fat intake and your protein intake aim for at least two grams per kilogram per day but it's probably not harmful to go above that all the way up to three grams per kilogram per day could be uh, could be beneficial and as always, don't go on any sort of labeled, named diet or anything like that. We know based on the research available today that these things, uh, they don't give you any sort of advantage. They can give you disadvantages depending on how you do it and what your training is like. Intermittent fasting is the same. It doesn't give you an additional advantage and can potentially impair your training. So avoid those things. Just do normal manipulations to your normal diet and and don't make it uh, a cult as Matt Fitzgerald refers to it as diet cults is uh, one of his books some some issues that may come up in uh, in the weight loss phase is that uh, or that you need to basically solve is that you need to make sure that you have access to healthy food options so stock your fridge stock your pantry with healthy food options at all times and uh, make make it things that are like easy and fast to get like whatever carrots are making for great snacks and uh and make make up some routines for you that work for you that's that's always super important if you don't have routines and habits then you need to rely on willpower and uh even just things like remembering things and that's difficult but if you make things routine and habit then you don't need to use any sort of willpower so and, and another thing is that uh depending on you can try to set up your eating environment like if you usually go out and eat at restaurants with your colleagues for lunch at at uh, at work that's something that i used to do uh, in my engineering life uh, they had these uh, these buffets with uh, you could basically you you picked your own food and you you got to put it on your plate yourself unlimited portion sizes and por- and uh, amounts of uh, of portions so so that's not very conducive uh, because you it makes you hungry as well so so in that period maybe you just bring your lunchbox or order a set sort of food from i don't know some health restaurant so so set up your environment to be conducive for this to to 
troubleshoot these issues that usually usually come up and uh, and making sure that you keep your diet quality high uh, don't don't do a lot of like these whatever light bars light drinks meal replacement blah 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 you won't get the the diet quality that you need from those things so uh, this is not uh, trying to get to your racing weight is not an excuse to slack on on a nutrition quality Okay, so one interesting study that I found in my research was uh, a publication called Reference Values for Body Composition and Anthropometric Measurements in Athletes. I always have such a hard time saying that word, anthropometric, but I think I got it this time. And this one was uh, written by Santos and colleagues in 2014. They had hundreds of athletes and uh, most of them, not all of them, but 481 athletes 142 female and 339 male uh, underwent DEXA scans and uh, they were from 21 different sports, uh, including triathlon. And so they measured all sorts of body composition uh, variables for these athletes. And uh, so I just wanted to give you some benchmarks. But again, these are elite athletes. I actually don't remember if they were all professional, but they were high-level athletes and training a lot. So I'm not trying to tell you that this is what you should be. I'm actually saying that you should probably not be at uh, quite this level as they are, because that might be that might not work in your lifestyle, in your life, and uh, with your training. So, so this is not something to shoot for. But this is kind of so you know what the ceiling is. Like if you go beyond this, then you you're probably out of line. And actually, uh, this is kind of a, a sidetrack. But uh, if you remember my interview with uh, Dr. Stacy Sims recently, after the interview, we chatted a bit about uh, an interesting uh, research work that's not been published yet, but about energy availability in age group athletes competing in in the Ironman World Championships in Kona. And I don't remember the exact numbers, and I'm not sure if I'm even allowed to <laughs> to say it, but... Uh, but of tens of athletes that they tested for energy availability, and I think they were all female athletes, uh, because that's usually Stacey's uh, main interest area, uh, like over 90% of them were in low energy availability. So it makes you it, it makes you really wonder, like, what do these girls do in, in their nutrition? Uh, so, so don't try to shoot for unrealistic targets. But these are kind of the values that elite athletes uh, in triathlon usually have so again don't shoot for these values but maybe a bit more realistic but this will give you at least something to 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 put your values as reference to if you go and have for example a DEXA scan or even if it's just normal weight or BMI so the average weight for female athletes was 58 kilograms and they were on average 168 centimeters uh, tall so that gives them a BMI of 20.4. And uh, for male, this uh, these same numbers were 66 kilograms and 176 centimeters and 21.3 as BMI. And then for the DEXA results, I'm not going to... I'm just going to talk about body fat percentage 
and the fat-free mass index, which is another thing we talked about with Jesse Kropolnicki. That's basically like your BMI, but it's just with your fat-free mass. So, so there's an important distinction there, and that's really important. And if you can get that fat-free mass pretty high, then, but not too high, because then you carry excess muscle, but to the right amount for your sport, then that's usually good. Uh, so, okay, let's uh, go back to the fat uh, body fat percentage first. So for female athletes, the, the I think it's not the average, it's actually the median, sorry, and it was the median uh, previously as well. So the median was uh, 20% body fat, and it should be stated here that DEXA scans, if you compare de- those results to something like... Uh, basically any other measurement they will usually come up as higher so if you think this sounds high then usually what this would show up on some sort of scale that you might buy on amazon it would be a lot lower it would maybe be something like 12 i don't know but but there would be a significant difference if these girls would uh, get up on one of those cheapish scales or even an expensive uh, bioelectrical impedance scale anyway dexa results 20 percent for females 11.9% body fat for males. And the fat-free mass index uh, was 16.1 for female and 18.5 for male athletes. And to give you another piece of reference, the highest possible fat-free mass index that uh, is probably achievable without using doping is 25. Uh, That that comes obviously from bodybuilding and resistance training and uh, that's just something that I found really randomly but it's pretty interesting to put into perspective. So I want to talk about the case study about uh, by Trent Stellingworth really quickly but first a couple of words of warning. Make sure that you understand the limitations of uh, measurement techniques first Uh, that's important and that you use the same sort of measurement technique each time in the same way otherwise you can make uh, incorrect conclusions and assumptions and also make sure that you are aware of the risks involved with losing weight quickly it's not just impaired uh, uh, training performance which can result in impaired uh, race performance of course but also health uh, decreased health performance and it's very easy to fall into the trap of uh, extreme weight control or dieting in order to get leaner. And in endurance sports, this is there's a high prevalence of disordered eating. And even without disordered eating, extreme behavior around nutrition and body composition can lead to this chronically low energy availability. And I'm sure that these girls in Kona that I just talked about that Stacey Sims will publish research on, I'm sure that they didn't, most of them probably didn't have any disordered eating like bulimia or anorexia. Maybe they had anorexia, some of them. But but mostly it was more the the obsessive nature of how they controlled their uh, nutrition and extreme behavior, put simply. And that gives them low energy availability, poor overall nutrition support. And it's, of course, detrimental for both performance and health. So don't make this too important. It's uh, body composition and raising weight is one smallish part of the puzzle. Okay, so let's move on to the case study. It's on Hilary Stellingworth, who is an Olympic track runner twice in 2008 and 12. And 1500 meters was her distance. And this uh, case study was published in 2017 in the International Journal of Sport and Exercise Metabolism. 
by uh, Trent Stellingworth, who is Hillary's husband, and he's one of the top researchers in sports nutrition. So they used, over her entire career, that was uh, nine years, uh, they used skinfold measurements in eight locations to estimate fat percentage. Basically, each time that they measured, they added the sum of those skinfolds together. So let's say that... Uh, uh, you have one skin fold that is two centimeter and one that is three, then the sum would be five. And when you add all of those eight together, you get a certain number. And that those sums are what they kind of measured and tracked over the course of her entire career. So it's called the sum of eight skin fold uh, measurement. And they have a chart in, in the article that is, it's, it's like a wave. Uh, it's very close to like a perfect waveform, really. And, and Hillary systematically, uh, she let her weight and body fat increase uh, each off-season and then brought it back down for competition. And uh, the fluctuations were around 2 to 4% in each uh, cycle. And uh, there, there are a couple of things that, she, that is remarkable about uh, how they did this and why this is important. One is that in her entire career, she only had two injuries that caused her to miss at least a week of training. And that's in the world of track and field and the 1500 mid-distance running. It's, uh, it's really remarkable. And uh, also, she had above normal bone density. They showed that with DEXA scans. She had normal menstrual cycles. And uh, her iron levels were great. So for an elite endurance athlete... She was like super healthy. She, it's uh, it's astounding, and that obviously helped her with performance as well. But many well-performing athletes don't have the same level of health as Hillary had. But also, she managed to do uh, to qualify for the Olympics twice. Almost got to the final in like the most uh, doped year of <laughs> athletics ever. So she missed out because of the dopers. Uh, generally, that's uh, that's fair to say, I think, and and she was very consistent season to season. Like she ran uh, 4:05 or below in almost all of her years, except when she was pregnant and returning from pregnancy. So some of the results in numbers, like between the different phases, the her body weight fluctuated as uh, on. Uh, Average 47.3 uh, to 48.3 in the competition versus non-competition phase. And the sum of eight skin folds, that was 53.6 versus 61.6 millimeters uh, in uh, uh, the competition versus non-competition phases. And they also had significant correlations of decreasing uh, sum of eight skin folds during the peak competition periods over her entire career. And uh, what else? I'm trying to look at this paper and see what is important here. Significant positive correlations between slower 1500 meter race times and increasing skin of eight. Uh, some of some of eight. Have I been seeing, saying skin of eight all the time? I, I may have had. So some of eight skin fold. Uh, anyway, so yeah, she ran slower when when her sum of eight was higher, and uh, and also these correlations with slower race times were with estimated fat mass and uh, actual measured body weight. They only estimated the fat mass usually based on those sum of eight skin folds. And some of the takeaway messages that uh, Trent, the author, made was that uh, in the non-competition period, they focused heavily on energy availability, making sure that that was on point all the time. And check out episode 94 for more about energy availability. 
Then when they wanted to get to racing weight, uh, and they can, they decided what the goal racing weight would be each year based on the accumulated experience of previous years and uh, gradually got that a bit lower until they didn't go lower. They they had a six to eight week period where they aimed for a daily caloric deficit of about 300 calories. And again, this is a light female we're talking about, but she's training a lot. So uh, in percentage-wise... 300 calories is not as big as it might be for somebody who's not training a lot. They used used various feedback metrics, body weight of course, but also performance and hunger to guide the process of of getting to racing weight. And how they achieved this caloric deficit of 300 calories per day was uh, very simple. They cut back on sweets and fat. And they also periodized uh, Hillary's nutrition uh, on a micro scale, on a day-to-day basis, uh, and made sure that she had enough fuel on hard workout days and ha- had enough to eat, but uh, cut back on uh, on the snacks and on the carbohydrate uh, portion sizes on her easier training days. And to avoid losing muscle during this weight loss phase, they they also, of course, as we talked about, ramped up her protein. So they had a goal of 2 to 2.5 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. And I guess the final important takeaway from this is that you you need to periodize your body composition or need to, I mean, who am I to say that you have to do something, but it is beneficial to periodize your body composition because it will be easier. It is difficult to sustain raising weight if you're really trying to get to the leanest possible you and the most optimal raising weight for your performance. Even though, as we talked about, that's individual, you should not go too far. It is still difficult. And uh, I know this, I've tried this many times and, and it is it is hard. So you would not want to stay there an entire year. I could not do that. It would be impossible. So it's much uh, more healthy and long-term sustainability is much improved if you you cut cut down to racing weight in your racing season and maybe if you have a long racing season you focus on your key races or and that may be two different periods like spring and and fall races whatever it may be don't try to be at your racing weight year round it's like trying to be in peak shape year round you can't do that you're just cutting yourself short of those absolute peak performances and uh, and kind of stagnate and uh, and perform flat simply so, so that's my final key takeaway from that case study. And uh, even though a case study is a case study, it's a very different kind of ed- evidence compared to the joint position statement and the ISSN position statement that I used as basis for the other things that we talked about that are reviews of uh, all the research available to date. A case study can still be beneficial and be a bit more illustrative of how this can happen and look like in the real world. And uh, and I picked this case study because it's uh, a great, uh, great case study. It's a great, well-known researcher who is one of the best in his field, and uh, and I respect him a lot. So so it's that that's the reasons that uh, I wanted to kind of highlight this. All right, I think that's about wraps it up for this episode of That Triathlon Show. Of course, the show notes will be on thattriathlonshow.com uh, and I'll link to them in the episode descriptions as well 
And if you have questions or comments, please leave them in the comment section on, uh, on that page. You just scroll down to the bottom of the page and you can write a comment there and uh, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. In the next episode, on Thursday, I interview Nate Koch, who is a, a great physical therapist from Endurance Rehab. He wrote two chapters in Triathlon Science, a great book that I reference constantly on injury prevention and recovery, and that's what we're talking about on Thursday, so make sure that you tune in for that. And also, I will mention this in Thursday's episode, because I've actually recorded that already, recorded that before this one. I will have a coaching slot opening up from April, uh, so if you're interested in getting coached by me, now is the time. I've been uh, all booked up uh, for quite some time until now, but now one of my athletes is uh, going into deployment training for deployment, so will not be able to train until, until the fall again. So there's a slot for you if you are interested. So check out the information on my coaching on scientifictriathlon.com forward slash coaching or just send me an email to michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's Michael with a K if you want to learn more and maybe set up a Skype call or something like that. Before we go, thank you so very much to our amazing sponsors. First, we have Stack and if you are looking for a new bike trainer, I highly, highly recommend getting a stack. This is the one that I use myself. And that's why I reached out to, to stack because I love their product. You can find all about the stack zero, find out all about the stack zero on stackzero.com. And on stackzero.com forward slash pre-order, you can try that discount code TTS20 and that will give you a 20% off the trainer. Uh, but you can also get that already whopping 150 euro discount when you pre-order their variable resistance trainer. And by the way, if you live in Portugal, I am now providing Stacks virtual wind tunnel technology to get you more aerodynamic and save you a ton of time on your bike. So send me an email if that is something that interests you. And thank you to Precision Hydration. They have a great free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com that will give you a personalized hydration strategy. You will find out roughly how much sodium you lose in your races. Based on the type of races that you do, uh, you will then get that strategy for how you should supplement with electrolyte products and you can get your first box of that product for free when you use the discount code that triathlon show all one word on precisionhydration.com and also check out their blog that's under the hydration advice tab i've written a couple of blog posts there recently one is on using training peaks to make smart use of data driven training because data driven training can also go horribly wrong and be dumb <laughs> so to say uh, but uh, smart use of it is great so uh, so check that out and one that i wrote was on tapering so and the research on optimal taper strategies so go and check those out again that's precisionhydration.com thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving triathlon